Well, good morning, church family. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy. I'm senior minister here, and I'm privileged to uh, uh, get the opportunity to just talk to you a little bit this morning about uh, who we are as a church. Often people ask me, tell me a little bit about Windsor Road. Who are you? And we are a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. That's who we are. And I want to talk about that this morning, uh, and we received a taste of that uh, in our scripture reading, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, talk to us about what this, what, what it looks like to be a life-changing community, a community that pursues Christ and puts Jesus first. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22 this morning. You'll find Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 11 on page 827 of your church Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible of your own and you would like a Bible of your own, just take one of those navy blue Bibles, put your name in it, and take it home and receive it, please, as a gift from us today. But we're going to be looking at these verses this morning, and I'm not going to be rereading them as we have heard uh, them. Uh, we've heard these verses uh, in uh, several different uh, languages this morning, and it has to do with part of the message that we're hearing from God in these verses. But I will tell you uh, the main point of these verses. I'll tell you the big idea. I'll tell you what I want you to take away if you don't take away anything else today. It's a mathematical equation. We're doing math today. Woohoo! <laughs> We're going to call it new math. All right? And here's the math. This is it. Who we were plus what Christ did equals who we are. That's it. That's the math equation today. I want to unpack that a little bit. I want to talk about each of those, the parts in that equation, beginning with who we were. Who we were. That's how Paul begins this section of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, in fact, he says it twice. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, therefore, he says, remember. Remember, remember who you, who, who you were, formerly. And then he says it again in verse 12, remember. Remember who you were, who was I? Well, well you were separate from Christ, verse 12. You were excluded uh, from citizenship in the community of Israel, you, you, were, you were excluded from the promises of the Hebrew Bible. You were without hope. You were, now, that doesn't mean they were without psychological hope. No. It means that they were without the kind of hope that Paul just spoke of in Ephesians chapter 1 when he prayed that those Ephesians would know the hope, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth and new body. That kind of hope. They were without that kind of hope. And without God... Now, it doesn't mean they were atheists. No, 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 no. But it does mean they were idol worshipers. It means that they did not know knowledge of the true God of the universe. 
You were without all of that. I want you to remember who you were, Paul says. That's a rather odd thing to say, don't you think? Remember who you were. Remember when you were without God, without hope. Remember that. You're here for the first time. Pastor stands up and says, I want you to remember what it was like when you were a dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinner. Welcome to Windsor Road. Let's have the offering now, can we? What? This is why I stopped going to church. I I don't want someone to stand up here and tell me to remember who I was. I don't like who I was. I don't like my past. I don't like my junk. I don't like my shame. I don't want to remember. You tell me to remember? No, not going to do it. And then some would say, well, that's confusing though. Why would God tell me to remember when, especially in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting. Forgetting what is behind me and straining toward what is ahead. I press on to the goal to win the, the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. So which is it, Paul? Do you want me to remember or do you want me to forget? Which is it? And the answer is yes. Decisively, yes. <laughs> and the, but, I mean, God doesn't remember my past. Why should I? Jeremiah 31, 34, God himself says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. If God doesn't remember my sins, why should I remember? Why? Why does Paul say that? I don't know. I'm kidding. I do. (laughs) I mean, I know. I know, I can read the commentaries, all right? Here's why. The reason why is anamnesis. That's why. Anamnesis. You know, you use that word a lot, don't you? Anamnesis. Huh? Say, I went to the doctor for that once. He gave me a prescription. Anamnesis. 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 A common literary device in ancient rhetoric, which is Greek for remembering. And in so doing, I am encouraged to appreciate what I have now by recollecting my disadvantaged position in the past. Anamnesis. Remembering. You know a little bit of that word. Amnesia. Forgetting. Well, this is the opposite of that. Anamnesis. Remembering. A remembrance. So Paul's using a, Paul's brilliant. He not only knows what to say, but he knows how to say it. And he's using the style that was prevalent in the ancient world, in ancient rhetoric. He's telling these people, I want you to remember yesterday in order to better appreciate today. Don't forget how good you have it by remembering how bad you had it. Anamnesis. Remembering. Once you were, so that you can appreciate, but now, what you have now. And, and, and by the way, this is the sort of thing that's going on here in this train of thought in verses 11 to 22. The once you were, verses 11 and 12, and then, and then you know, verses 13 and following are the but now, you know. Once you were, but now. And the, by the way, it's the second time Paul does this in chapter 2. If you just glance back up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he does the same thing. 
Once you were, and then verses 4 through 10, but now, you see, don't forget how good you have it by remembering how bad you had it. Okay. All right, that makes sense. Question. What would ever cause me to forget how good I have it? What would ever cause me to forget how good I have it? See? Huh. Especially this church. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 1:3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, God's been so good to us. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I mean, well, I mean, wow, that's I mean, that's how good we have it. I mean, and especially when you think about how this church started. In Acts chapter 19, we hear about how this church was launched. And it was amazing. It was really launched with about 15 people. Uh, Paul, uh, Priscilla, and Aquila. And then there were 12 other disciples in the Ephesus area. And my goodness, out of this, this amazing church was launched. Uh, put it, let me put it this way. Can you imagine starting a Christian church in Salt Lake City? Can you imagine starting a Christian church in Mecca? What about a Christian church, I mean a thriving, growing Christian church in Kathmandu? You know, this, this, this capital of Hinduism. I've been to that one. I haven't been to the other two. An amazing world. I've gotten to preach uh, at Sundar Tapas, the church where he pastors. Um, amazing work of God that's going on. Well, that's what we're talking about in the city of Ephesus. I mean, the city of Ephesus was a bastion of a cult with this temple of Artemis. I mean, it, just, it wasn't just a, a puny little shrine. It was an amazing edifice. And it was, this, it was this complex that helped fuel the economy of the city. It was fantastic. And, and, and Paul came and, you know, he went to a synagogue and then got run out of the synagogue in Acts chapter 19. And then he went to the, to the lecture hall of Tyrannus where it says in Acts chapter 19, he preached the word of God and boldly proclaimed Christ. And, and uh, for over two years, and interestingly enough, it says uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, Nine, Acts chapter 19, verse 11, so that, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. I mean, remember that, Paul says in Ephesians. You remember that? And I mean, the name of Jesus was held up so high and miracles happened so much so that unbelievers tried to invoke the name of Jesus to try to heal people and they got beat up (laughs) by the demons they were trying to, to exercise. And then in Acts 19, verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. I mean, they were absolutely... Paul says, don't you remember that? Remember who you were? And, and, then, and then, because this was such a capital of occultism, I mean, these folks who were converted, they took their old scrolls, 
They're old occultic scrolls. I mean, we're, and, and, and they, they destroy them. I mean, we're, I'm not talking to you about, I'm, we're not talking about movie lovers who took their Harry Potter DVDs and burned them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about scrolls that were, uh, the, one commentator says that the value of all the scrolls that were burned, and it was a public burning, valued $6 million dollars. You say, well, that money could have been used to, you know, feed the poor. No, no, no. We're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna raise money that way. We're gonna burn the thing. And they burned it. And, and I mean, and the word of the Lord, my goodness, Acts 19, 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I mean, talk about being on the front lines of a culture war. That's what's going on here. And that's why the amphitheater in Ephesus, and you can go there today. Sarah and I have got to see it. You can go there today. 25,000 people jammed into that amphitheater. A near riot took place. Paul wanted to march in and preach the gospel. The disciples said, you are not going in there. They will rip your limbs off, man. Get out of town before they kill you. That's how this church got started. That's radical. Oh, yeah. And that was seven years ago, though. That was seven years ago. And this race horse launch kind of became a workhorse. And, and by the way, that happens in organizations. It really does. There are seasons of racehorse uh, uh, pace where you go. But that doesn't, that doesn't continue forever. It doesn't. The racehorse becomes the, the workhorse, the plow horse. And the newness and the euphoria of relationships and the work, you know, you know, we've got a new baby Oh, oh, we got, this is a new relationship. This is a new marriage. And then you realize, this, this is work. Yeah, this is a new church. This is work. And the things you used to notice before that didn't bother you, they kind of annoy me. It's kind of annoying. I'm not talking about your marriage. That's another sermon. I'm talking about church. I'm talking about church. And you kind of get, you know, you get tired. You get tired. You, get, you kind of get tired. I'm kind of getting tired of these same problems. You know, these mistakes, they're these the same mistakes. Let's make new mistakes. And I'm, I'm kind of getting fatigued. Anybody, is anybody here, there? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get tired. You get tired of relationships. You get tired, you get tired of church. I'll just say it. You get tired of church. I get, I get tired of this. I get tired of this preacher. He always talks about the cross. Well, no cross, no church. I'm going to talk about it every week. Yeah, there's really only two sermons I preach. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Or Jesus plus something equals everything. That's all we have here. So I, get, I get tired. I get fatigued. You say, you think, that, you think the Ephesians felt that? 
I would argue that they do, and here's why. 30 years, 30 years after they heard these words from the Apostle Paul, they would hear another letter from Jesus himself through the pen of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation in which Jesus tells this church 30 years later, you have lost your first love. And if you don't get that first love out, I'm going to close your doors. So yeah, I do think there's some fatigue that's going on. Had they, beca- had they been Christians for so long that they had forgotten what it was like when they were in the pit? Have we? Have we? And you know what happens then, don't you? See, if you forget your, what happens when people forget that they were once in the pit, then walls start coming up. Walls start coming up uh, between ourselves and God, between ourselves and one another. Walls come up. I'm not going to let you hurt me anymore. I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to, I'm going to put this wall up and it's, and, and, and because we just don't want, and we just smile and nod and everything's fine and we're just kind of, you know. And by the way, if you're feeling the kind of tiring fatigue that I'm talking about, see, there's this temptation to want to fix things by changing your future. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a new relationship. I'm going to find a new church. I'm going to find a new pastor who's going to give me what I want to hear. And, 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 and you know what? What happens is you experience that euphoria again, and then the racehorse becomes the plow horse again, just like it did last time, and you get tired of that, and you want to go someplace else. And you just, you just change from racehorse to racehorse to racehorse to racehorse to racehorse, and all you're doing is just making circles around the track. You're not, you're not making any progress whatsoever. And what Paul is saying here is you don't need to change your future. What needs to happen is you need to remember your past. Remember, what is your past, by the way? Is it, is it a sordid past? Is it a self-righteous past? Is it an irreligious past? Is it a religious past? Is it an arrogant past? Is it an abusive past? What past does God want me to remember? Because whatever that past is, church family, it does not matter because it, that past is a pit from which God has delivered us. Remember that, Paul says. Remember. So you remember who you were. And then I want you to remember, Paul says, I want you to remember how you were delivered. And that's where we get to the second part of this equation. Here's who you were, and here's what Christ did. See, it does no good for me to merely remember my past. God wants me to remember Christ's past. It is hopeless. It is hopeless if all I do is just remember my past. Because if I just remember my past, I'll be so filled with shame and guilt, or I'll be filled with arrogance. But I need to remember Christ's past. I need to bring to mind what I did, and I also need to bring to mind what Christ did. And what did Christ do? Well, in verses 13 to 18, we learn that Christ is our peace. Christ made peace, and Christ proclaims peace. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 13 says that, that God acted. He entered our pit 
in Jesus Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. And he destroyed, verse 14 says, he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let's talk about that phrase, the wall of hostility, the dividing wall of hostility. Let's talk about that for a moment. That wall existed on two levels. First and foremost, it was a wall that existed between ourselves and God. God's holiness requires that I approach him on his terms, not mine. It's his house. You know, there's a protocol. If I want to walk into the Oval Office of the White House, there's a protocol. And if I choose, if I want to enter the Oval Office of the holiest place in the universe, the very presence of God, there's a protocol. And my moral crimes against this holy God, exclude me from him. So there's that wall. That's the first wall. But then there's another level, and that that wall is between ourselves. And that's why Paul spoke of those near and those far. You see that? The Jews and the Gentiles. And you see, from Paul's point of view, the Hebrew worldview only saw two ethnicities. Hebrews and everybody else. Jews and Gentiles. And Paul spoke of this dividing wall of hostility. It was both a literal and figurative wall. At the temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall, a wall uh, uh, which the non-Jewish folks who wanted to come to the temple to worship, that they could only go so far. They, They were not allowed to breach the boundary of this wall under penalty of death. And of course, the entire configuration of the temple was a series of these walls keeping people out. First the Gentiles, then the Israelites, then the priests, and finally the most holy place where only the high priest would enter. But figuratively, figuratively, the law itself, the Hebrew Bible, was a wall. And and it was a good wall, mind you, a good wall. God's word The Hebrew Bible, the law is good if you keep it. And when Israel kept it, Israel shined like a city on a hill. But of course they didn't. They despised it. And so they they became arrogant about it and blind to their own sin. And this religious wall became a race, racial wall, a social wall, a cultural wall. The divisions between Jews and Gentiles in the first century were greater than any divide that we face among Anglo, African, Latino, Asian, or Native American. So now what? Well, there's a wall between ourselves and God and a wall between ourselves. What now? Verse 16 tells us that Christ reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In the cross, God condemned my sin in Christ's body so that I could approach God. In the cross, God punished Jesus for my rebellion, for my self-righteousness, for my evil, for my racist attitudes, for my arrogance, for my dirty thoughts, words, and deeds. In the cross, Jesus said to the Father, Father, blame me, punish me, kill me for Randy's crimes. And I say, that's not fair. You're right, it's not. It's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And now, in the cross, Jesus looks to me, and he says, Randy, 
you blame me for whatever issue you have with anybody else. I'll shoulder the responsibility. I'll take the responsibility. I'll bear it. I'll pay for it. And I say, that's not fair. And Jesus says, you're right. It's grace. It's grace. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ made, the Bible says, one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. So so Jesus has created a new race of people, a new creation. See, we're not just forgiven our sins, we're given a new identity. This is why John Piper says, the bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. See, my primary identity because of Christ, my primary identity now is not in my race or my nationality or my vocation. It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. All of these are secondary. My relationship, my identity in Christ comes first. And at the same time, I don't stop being white or black or Latino or Asian or Native American or Pacific Islander in this life for the life to come. My ethnicity is a mark of God's creative power, his artistry. You are God's workmanship. You are God's poem. Listen, this is the only path to peace in our community. The only path. When I read in the media, both globally and locally, about ethnic divisiveness and mistrust, You ask, what can ever unite us? And these verses boldly assert only Christ, only the gospel. Because if the gospel cannot unite us, then let's just go home. Let's just go home. See, the fact of the matter is the world tries to go about ethnic or racial or economic or societal reconciliation, but always on a horizontal basis first. And that's never going to work. It's not. Because it's first a vertical issue. It's a sin issue between myself and God. And when I reconcile with God, and when you reconcile with God, and he becomes our father, then we become siblings. And when we have the eyes of our hearts open to see the power of Christ to destroy those walls, oh my I guess what I'm saying is that the, the kind of the acronym WWJD, what would Jesus do? I don't think that's as helpful as WDJD. What did Jesus do? Well, now we know. He is our peace. He makes peace. He proclaims peace. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is who we were. And this is what Christ did. And now what? Oh, well, when you add that together, this is who we are. This is who we are. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19, consequently, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. 
Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here's who you were, here's what Christ did, and now here's who you are. Who are we? Oh, well, these verses tell us. Uh, uh, we're, we're a kingdom. Oh, no, no, we're more than that. We're, we're a family. No, no, we're even closer than that. We're a temple. We're a temple. You see, these are, this, there's progressive imagery that's going on here to show how intensely we are connected as the body of Christ. First we're citizens, then we're siblings, and now we're cemented together. We're living stones. That's what the, apostle, the word the apostle Peter uses. We're cemented together. And these verses answer the question, how can we see the power of Christ today? And the answer is, we see the power of Christ uh, through the changed lives of believers who together make up not just a kingdom, not not just a family, but a temple, a temple of the living God. And that's not just a vision for the future. That's now, right now. As the church gathered, that we are the the indwelling of God. You understand now why I I just kind of, my face just scrunches up when I hear questions like, well, can I go to heaven without belonging to a church? That's a bad question. It really is. It's a bad question. See, See, here's the question. Here's the question. Can God's power flow through my life if I am unwilling to be grafted into a community of love, truth, and mission? Now, that's the question. And the answer is this. No! No! Not at all. No. Because, you see, whenever the Apostle Paul talks about God's power, he always follows up with church. God's power, therefore, church. That's it. And you may push back. You may say, well, no, well, my, no. My religion's private. I don't want to pray with others. I don't want to talk to people about how I'm feeling with my relationship with God. I don't want to do that. And, and Ephesians would then push back to you. <laughs> Ephesians would say, no, no. The truth is you need another Christian in your life so that you can know Jesus and grow in him you, you need another Christian in your life to remind you who you were. You need another Christian to remind you what Christ did. You need another Christian to remind you uh, uh, who we are. You see, you, we say, well, I want to know God. I just don't like people. Well, it's not going to work that way. It's not. Hey, listen, the God we worship, the true God The Christian doctrine of God is unity and diversity. Our three-in-one God is one being, three persons, pouring love and delight into himself. So much so that the Godhead chose to create humans to share such love. So then how can you expect to relate to this God who is a single divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without pushing us into community? 
a deep community of love and mission in this world. You cannot know this God without community because he is community. We are the temple and one brick does not a temple make. And how can the greatness of our God, I mean, how how can one brick inhabit all that God is? But when the community of living stones rise to become the temple of the living God, the dwelling of Christ by his spirit, and when the world sees this, when the world sees this life-changing community, when the world sees this compelling love, this winsome love, this attractive love, when the world asks, how, how do I do life? How do I make it in these economic times? How do I do marriage? How do I, how, how do, I uh, do life as an employee? How do I do life as an employer? How do I do this? Oh my goodness, you see the, 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 the challenge is that they might ask those questions and then look to the temple where the living God resides. I'm talking about us. You help Teach people about what life is like because of Christ's presence in you. That's our challenge. That's our calling. That's our mission here. And, and it's, a, it's a mission that's more splendid and, and the temple of the living Christ is more splendid than the temple of, of Artemis and it's more splendid than the temple in Jerusalem. And that's why Christianity keeps going for the last 2,000 years because it is the power of God to change lives. This is who you were. This is what Christ did. Here's who we are. And that's the word for today. Hallelujah.